Hi, I'm Tan Lei. This is my podcast, Noticing. I'm here now with my guest, Leo Hirug. How are you, Leo? I'm great, Tan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And how did I do with the surname? Perfect. Really? Much, much better than most people do. Yes. Hirug, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I have, I've never had a problem with、um, going for it in terms of pronunciation, whereas a lot of people kind of hold back. Like, if you're going to do it, you've got to go all the way.、Mm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, Leo, I mean, you're the closest thing to a brain surgeon that I'm going to have as a guest on this podcast.、Would right. you, how would you describe yourself, what you do? I, I guess I describe myself as an experimentalist and scientist. Being like a particular case of experimentalist, because I experiment with many more things than just science. So, yeah,、mm. I'm, I'm an experimentalist. Okay. And would you say that you specialize in brain work or you know, brain activities?、Uh, yes. Professionally,、uh, I've been studying the brains of mice for、mm-hmm. 30 years or something like that. Well, not like, quite 30, but 25.、Uh, wow. And, and I'm interested in human mind as well. Uh, which, yeah. which is a more recent thing cognition, consciousness, mind. Yeah, these are the things that make my heart sing. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's why I was really looking forward to speaking to you about this. So, so quickly about Neurotar before we get onto human stuff. So, what do you guys do? Can you explain? Yeah, sure.、Uh, rough, roughly what you do at Neurotar? So, Neurotar is about 10 years old. It was founded in 2009. And we started out as a contract research organization,、uh, meaning that we do research experiments uh, as a service to pharmaceutical industry. And this we've been doing for about 10 years.、Um, but about five years ago, we stumbled into、um, the device business. In a sense that we、mm. to improve our services to go from experiments on anesthetized mice、uh, to experiments on awake and behaving mice, we invented、mm. a special device, a research instrument, which we call mobile home cage. And then we saw that it was not only useful to us, but also to other researchers around. So we decided to make it into a product. So this is the second line of business、uh, at Neurotar, and it's a faster growing one. Um, where we design,、uh, produce, and market and sell the research instruments around the world. What do you do with the data? Like, what, what benefits do you strive to achieve? For our customers, for the drug developers in the pharma industry,、uh, what we do, we help them at the very late stage of preclinical drug development. Preclinical meaning before testing it in humans, actually. There's, mm. there's a lot of tests that need to be done in animals before taking the risks of running the first human trials、uh, with volunteers.、Mm. And、uh, we are pretty much de risking、uh, these steps for our clients by performing the experiments in the most relevant context of a whole animal's brain rather than in vitro on dissociated cells or、uh, brain slices. And this gives them. The ability to test the mechanism of action of their drugs、um, in a more relevant context and make a better prediction whether this will work
in humans or not. Mm. So okay. it's, it's like a money-saving strategy for them because uh, in our experiments we use only a few animals because we look into the same animal's brain over and over again. So we don't need to average mm. as many uh, mice at, in different groups. And mm. we can do these uh, experiments more quickly and uh, more economically as opposed to the standard approach where you test it on just hundreds of animals at one time point by sacrificing them at different time points after the drug injection, for example. So, yeah, it's okay. a small small niche uh, that we pretty much carved out for ourselves. We invented this niche and we still are the only provider in the world who does this kind of experiments for pharma clients. Wow. So, basically, you're going to make obsolete the old days of you know protesters chaining themselves <laughs> to the labs don't harm the animals because you know you're going to change all of that you have changed it we've changed it on a small scale there still is a lot of inertia in the pharma industry so yes. the first few years we had to go around and evangelize or actually educate our future clients uh, about the benefits of this technique uh, what it will give them um, and and some of them bought into it, others decided to stick to the old routines. Uh, so we, we certainly haven't changed the marketplace as much as the technology would allow us because we're a small company, we're in the middle of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say in the middle of nowhere, but we're, we're quite far from <laughs> most of our clients. Um, mm. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a fun game, but it, it hasn't really changed the world. What's the most popular type of animal that we do medical testing on? Is it mice or Yeah. Do we yeah. still do we t do we still test on primates and monkeys? Yes. Uh those experiments have become more difficult to get the licenses for especially in Europe. Uh but in places like Malaysia, China, um and in some places uh around the world um it is possible to do primate experiments. Wow. Okay. And I guess it's necessary. It's necessary for some uh, some specific purposes, when especially when you're talking about the higher nervous function, the psychiatric disorders, etc. Interesting. Really interesting. So, how similar? Because you you've been studying mice for close to thirty years. Mm -hmm. So, what can you learn about humans uh, from looking at mice? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a question, a good question. You, you can talk about it for hours, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on a very simplistic, basic level, what I learned was that we are very similar biophysically and physiologically to uh, other mammals, even to mice. There are certain things that, yeah. that work very similarly. And that's a fun part. Uh, it's encouraging in the sense that it, it uh, satisfies the curiosity of a scientist and also helps de develop better drugs uh, to treat human diseases. But on the other hand, it's sort of unsettling and scary a bit to see how similar we are to other animals in many respects. And I don't think it's only physiologically and uh, biophysically or anatomically that we are similar, but also psychologically. <laughs> the, yeah, the, absolutely. There are so many things that we do automatically uh, in the reflective, re, uh, kind of reflex 
based way. And this is what fascinates me in how some people are much more aware and conscious uh, about the mm. way their bodies and their minds work, and they seem to master this process much better. Uh, I'm not talking about mm. their digestion or blood flow, <laughs> heartbeat processes, but their thinking process, their uh, emotional mm. reactions. And others uh, behave more like animals, we would say, in, in, in that everything is predetermined by the genes, by the pre previously acquired reflexes and learned, uh, you know, the instinctive and uh, learned behaviors. Mm. And mm. Uh, when I look around and I look at myself as well, I just uh, oh, yeah. I'm amazed how much of it is going uh, on, on the background on the unconsciously automatically in the zombie kind of style <laughs> absolutely yeah so that's what fascinates me and uh, i think in animals we can learn a great deal uh f from experiments on animals uh not only about their body's reaction and their brain's reaction but also about their minds their uh psychology uh their complex behavior and decision making processes Of course, they're very different from humans. This is where we differ a lot. Uh, we have a language, we have uh, a symbolic uh, system of language and numbers and all sorts of other symbols. We have a capability of thinking in an abstract way, of thinking about thinking and thinking about thinking about thinking, mm. <laughs> all layers mm. of complexity, which may or may not exist in animals. We just don't know. We don't speak their languages. So, mm. so this is where it gets really confusing. So some of our clients in the pharmaceutical industry are working on psychiatric diseases and psychological mood disorders. And they have a really hard time translating the results of animal experiments into predictable results in, in human patients. Because this is where we differ a lot from other mammals and from other animals and the higher cognitive function and a higher nervous system function. Mm. so yeah i learned both about similarities and dissimilarities differences and both are fascinating to me yeah me too and and the other fascinating thing is even if we know it even if we have this information that if this sensory input comes then i will react this way even if you know it a lot of times we can't stop it or we can watch ourselves yep you know going down this path which we know which we knew we were going to do you know what i mean like yeah, absolutely. So knowing it sometimes isn't enough no. but it's a first step yes and uh, this is where uh, i distinguish between knowledge and wisdom uh, knowledge is not oh, yeah. actionable wisdom is and uh, interestingly when we transfer transform the information from the, the scattered bits into some organized information and then into knowledge it still is a long way uh before it starts affecting our behavior we can know exactly Absolutely what we huge. need to do what we must do what is good for us and never do it because uh, the decisions ah, no, that we make that's <laughs> that is that's humanity described in one sentence right <laughs> yeah. there Yes, and, and, and this is where all the guilt and uh, fears and uh, dissatisfaction with life come from, from this cognitive dissonance, from the dissociation. Uh, I think Apostle Paul, uh, although I, I generally don't like the, the effect that he had on uh, the, 
development of Christianity, but he had some smart things that he wrote in his epistles. And one of them was that I find only the desire to do the right things in me, but the capability of doing it, I don't find it. <laughs> and that's exactly because the, the knowledge is useless unless it sort of is condensed down, distilled to actionable wisdom, uh, which people sometimes call gut feeling. Your, mm. You know, your gut brain axis is very strong and it uh, not just affects, but pretty much determines the decisions that you're going to be making, uh, the things that you will like or dislike, the things you will believe or uh, doubt. Uh, these are all emotional reactions. And we just, we spend most of our time rationalizing our emotional decisions, <laughs> either accusing mm. ourselves for doing the wrong thing or justifying ourselves uh, when we do what we think are the right things. But it, it's usually post-factum. The decision is a snap decision that is made by the what we call fast brain or limbic brain. The, mm -hmm. the, the reptilian brain is also what people call it. Yep, absolutely. Um, so we, at some point in the past, a few eons ago, we were just a regular monkey. We were just regular animals walking right the earth. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think uh, made us, set us on the path to where we are today? Like, do, you, do you think there was something specific? For example, oh, no, no, before I give you examples, let yeah. me see what you think. <laughs> so do you think there was, you know, what, what separated us from the other chimps? Very good question. Uh, a safe answer would be evolution, mutations. Uh, this is how evolution works. Uh, sure. Biological evolution, uh, the hereditary, uh, the re reproduction-based, slow, uh, slow-paced evolution works by um, introducing mutations to genes through environment, through all sorts of randomness and serendipity. You know, the alpha particles flying through <laughs> the Earth atmosphere, uh, hitting the mm. genes and creating mutations. That's how evolution moves forward. Um, and that's, that may be something uh, just as simple as that, that one species, specifically the Homo sapiens, uh, had this a specific or particular, uh, set of, uh, evolutionary, uh, or evolution driving mutations that made our neocortex, uh, bigger, more advanced. Uh, this is the, um, you know, the evolutionary biology point of view. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but that's how I understand it. Mm. There are, of course, other interesting theories like alien invasion, seeding intelligence on Earth, or that. Mm. Uh, or I, <laughs> I like uh, Terence McKenna's theory of uh, stoned monkey. Oh, I love. <laughs> yeah, I love that <laughs> stoned monkey. That that sounds pretty interesting. And. This whole thing of... Uh, and the mushrooms, Thomas yeah. McKenna, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the idea there, for, for those who haven't heard about it, was that, uh, you know, just a tribe of monkeys stumbled into a psychedelic plant or mushroom. And all of a sudden, mm. the, the cognitive abilities uh, and uh, the self-awareness and, and, and consciousness about the surrounding world uh, dramatically broadened and deepened uh, in that particular monkey. And, and then it, it somehow was able to spread it to, uh, or maybe just invite the <laughs> other members of the tribe to taste it as well. And 
that's how it all started. Yeah, I completely believe it. Yeah, I, I'm really I'm a subscriber of that because it makes sense. But uh, add to that, obviously, that's not the only thing because I don't think we have the biggest neocortex, do we? I mean, like whales and yeah, there's there's animals with bigger brains. Yes, and there are so, animals who are smarter than us in in uh, from from all all sorts of different points of view. They they can see better they can think faster they can react better they can compute things in a much more complex way than we are we're just very specialized in in one sense i would say it's this symbolic abstract thinking uh and the, yeah. the language uh that we have that exactly has, that's where i was gonna go so yeah the way i see it it's the mushrooms which expanded the brain and then we happen to have just the right vocal cords the right uh, you know, makeup physically to create sounds like the other animals that you mentioned with bigger brains and faster thinking and better eyesight. If you don't have the vocal cords, you, there's there's a certain you know you can't communicate and language. So for me, mushrooms plus language hmm. <laughs> equals rocket ships. Yeah. Could be that. That's, yeah, I, I don't think it's specifically about the vocal cords. Uh, other animals communicate in very complex ways. Uh, they, they just uh, have a different types of languages. They are not necessarily uh, as, mm. as binary as ours, because ours really boil down to like elementary symbols, letters of the alphabet, uh, the sounds of, of specific uh, letters or or yeah uh, or hieroglypha so they are they are very simple symbols um so it it's uh, it's this binarization uh of the world around us by chopping mm. chopping it into yes and no's the goods and bads uh, the light and dark etc this is how we think of the world we uh, mm. we think in in uh, dichotomies and i don't think other animals think or perceive the world uh, or contemplate the world in a similar way. They have different ways, uh, which we don't comprehend mm. fully. Exactly. So, and and they all many of them have vocal cords. Many of them use their mouths uh, or beaks, uh, other organs to produce sounds, even legs <laughs> for the insects, etc. And, and they are complex mm -hmm. enough. They can carry a lot of information. It, it's not specifically about our. Uh, uh, lips and tongue and, and uh, the vocal cords. Um, we, we just use what we have uh, and animals use what they have and we've specialized into the language in the way we know it. We tend to think that this is the most advanced uh, linguistic system in the world. I don't subscribe to this point of view. It's, it's very human-centric. Oh, wow. It's very human-centric. Interesting. And I don't think we're the most intelligent uh, species. I don't think we're the most advanced species uh, i don't think we are entitled to rule the world the way we are ruling it today and, and, no, and agreed, ru ruining agreed. it <laughs> so uh, i definitely yeah. don't think we're the most intelligent in terms of i think the, the way i would describe humans in one sentence is we do things that are bad for us mm -hmm. i mean that that's the way i would describe it universally he, what's a human a human is a creature that does things that's actually bad for it yeah, yeah. Uh, but for it, in an individual level and on a species level, whereas other species don't. <laughs> so we're definitely not the most intelligent. But then the, the bad and good, of course, are context-specific and they are totally relative. Uh, they are bad for us at this scale, uh, of scales of individuals and of the society that we know today. 
But if you zoom mm. out to longer periods of time or to larger uh, spatial uh, dimensions, like the whole Earth or the whole universe or whatever, then mm -hmm. you don't see it as bad or good anymore. It's all part of evolution, uh, which is just good. Oh, yeah. That, that's how things evolve. <laughs> sure, sure. But bad for itself, do you think we could say bad for itself? Like humanity does things that, that's bad for humanity. Humanity's survival. Let's put a, an actual metric on it. Humanity does things that's bad for its own survival. Yeah. Humanity you, as we know it to? today, right? The biological species that is organized in societies and political systems and all yeah. that. Yeah, uh, sure. But uh, again, at a larger scale, every entity has a lifespan. Everything that was, let's say, created or had a beginning must have an mm, end. Like an a end. human organism. Yep. Uh, you know, if you look at different civilizations, empires... There is a rising passionate phase and then there is a plateau and then there's a decay, always, like in a human life. So mm. uh, human species, as we know it, might be going through that transition now that we, uh, we've evolved to the point where we've played a specific role in the bigger picture of evolution. We brought, yeah. we brought into the world a successor. Uh, I believe that what mm. we called artificial intelligence, ironically, is not absolutely is not artificial at all. <laughs> it's as natural as it, natural it was as always it gets. meant to be. Yeah, um, it, and it's it's the next step. Uh, how long we coexist with this next uh, next best thing or next um, evolutionary step? We don't know. This is up to us, and this is the playground that I I like to entertain myself and spend my. Uh, lifetime on and my attention on is uh, to see how we can if we cannot really influence the direction in which the evolution goes but I feel like no. we can accelerate it uh, a little bit in uh, contributing it's like our mental capacities and our broader intelligence uh, contributing it to making people more aware of where we are now as a species as an individuals and mm. and giving them and ourselves a bit more control over this ride rather than going in cruise control and automatic drive uh enjoy some driving you know uh make sure that the, when you turn the steering wheel uh, <laughs> you're actually doing the not a suicidal move but rather you are following the road and exploring new uh New horizons. So this this is what drives me today. I would say is trying to understand how our minds and brains work, try to develop new tools, including technological tools, to feed back the information to help us know ourselves better than others could know us. Because if they, yeah. whoever they are, governments, uh, corporations. Uh, you, you know, individuals. If they Spots. know us better, <laughs> yeah. If they know us better, they can control our and manipulate our decisions. And this is not a good life. I think a good life is when you're aware of who you are, what you do, and why. Agreed. And I love what you did before, which is you made me think of something in a different way than I did. You just brought something new to me, which was... Uh, me saying, yeah, we do things that are bad for us. Uh, but you put it as we're just moving the way we're supposed to move and we're bringing, we've brought the successor. So maybe that's our mission. That's our purpose yeah, is to bring, 
AI into existence. Yeah. And I think we'll fuse. I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go along for the ride. We, we will be, I mean, Elon Musk is already, what do you think about what Elon Musk is doing with uh, Neuralink? No, I think it's great. Uh, this is absolutely a thing to do. And it's kind of experiment on humans that uh, I, I think uh, is good to do. Uh, a, a true scientific approach is a, f- well, this is, maybe I'll say something that most people will disagree upon. Oh, but I think a, a much better scientific approach is a first person uh, perspective rather than the third person. And the Western science has been running on the third person perspective for centuries already, ever since the inception in, in, the, uh, in the religious context. It's this object, object to subject relationship and the Cartesian dichotomy of uh, self and other. This is what lies as a foundation in the Western science. And, and this is what ruins it, I think, because you cannot fully understand another person by just measuring behavior or brain signals uh, and then averaging mm. it up over larger numbers of people and making some conclusions that, okay, all humans do this or all humans do that. Every life is an individual experiment. <laughs> it's, it's like a, a case study that sometimes the, the clinicians like to publish when they find an interesting patient. They want to tell a story of this patient's disease and the treatment and the outcome in a scientific paper. And they call it N of 1 uh, where n is the number of subjects, n of one mm-hmm. case study, and I think every human life is is like this. You can understand a lot uh, and predict uh, some of future behaviors and decisions by looking at this person's previous history, but not as much by just uh, comparing this person to other people as Western science would do. So. In my opinion, neuroscience should be done on your own brain. <laughs> this is what I've, I've been trying to do, trying to increase my uh, neuronal plasticity using books, podcasts, uh, you know, training, meditation techniques, uh, some other mind-expanding mm. techniques. Uh, and and mm. this is what's most fascinating to me in, in the last year or so. But then, uh, yeah, you, you do that and then you... you- you get some insights, but then as soon as you share it with somebody else, then that becomes third-person communication, doesn't it? Third-person Yeah, yeah, it's, it's totally lost in translation. And this is why I think these uh, mindfulness techniques uh, are so useful. It's because you're, you're not instructing another person based on your personal experience, but you're actually giving them the tools to study their own minds, yeah. their own behaviors, their own emotions, their own thinking process, and decision-making process so that they are more aware of all the patterns, the perhaps pathological patterns of how they keep stepping on the same gravel. <laughs> gravel. Is it gravel or gravel? Whatever you step stepping on, on the gravel? step on it and it hits you in the head, in the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they, they can identify these uh, vicious circles in their life and get rid of them by just knowing that, okay, this is what's happening to me. This is how I can avoid falling into the same trap again and again. Man, so true. Mm. Okay, so um, we've, we've pretty much covered Hey, do you want to tell me a little bit about your N of One project? Yes, it, it, it's what not you, my project. And it, it was never just my project. I, I think it started as a brainchild of uh, 
Kalle, Matt, my good friend, and myself, uh, uh, we have a habit of having long walks together. <laughs> Somewhat expired by people like Steve Jobs, who also took you know people for a couple of hours to walk around in California. We mm. walk in Helsinki; it's a great place to walk. Uh, lots of mm. lots of nature, lots of silence, and not so many people around. And good air. And good air. And, and sun in the summer. So, yeah, since about maybe May uh, of this year, it's about half a year ago, uh, we've been taking these long walks and, and, and just talking. <laughs> mm. And we came up with this idea that what's different today from a few decades ago or hundreds of years ago is that we have so many ways of capturing the data that we generate our behavior, our travel trajectories, uh, even biometrics. You know, there are devices that are measuring our heartbeat uh, can tell us whether we are stressed or relaxed, whether we are aroused and focused or uh, absent-minded, etc. So all, mm. all these data, they can be captured. And there's, uh, there are big players in the market today that are capturing the data. And they're treating, they're using these data as a new currency pretty much. Money is an outgoing currency. Uh, it, it is uh, totally lost it, its power on uh, on the world scale. It's the information, it's the data that drives the world today. So, mm. so what what we concluded from these conversations was that these data we're pretty much giving them away for free instead of using them for our own benefits. Because when when we disseminate the data, when we share them free of charge with uh, uh, big corporations or governments, they get to know us much better than we know ourselves. And, and this is the, mm -hmm. the, the balance, the scale that, is, that keeps shifting. We keep losing control over our minds and lives and decisions. And the third parties keep gaining more and more control. Of course, all the Cambridge Analytica story, the Trump election, the Brexit... Uh, the biggest examples of that, but it's happening in our everyday life with all of us, all the time. So mm. our thought was very simple. Uh, we need to collect, capture more of these data, collect them in a secure place, like deposit in a digital bank, uh, so that nobody else can uh, use it against us, use our data against us. And then use the modern analysis methods the artificial intelligence, the machine learning, to process this data and give it back to the data owners, to the individuals, as, mm. a, as a knowledge that will, with time, uh, be transformed into actionable wisdom. And these people will be more aware, more conscious, and they will have a more fulfilled life. That's, in a nutshell, the idea of N of One project. Mm. Really interesting. You were talking about um, now computers collecting our data, right? Governments, mm -hmm. uh, organizations, corporations collecting our data. And I suppose just going back to earlier what you said about how knowledge is useless to us unless, you know, we apply it. Mm -hmm. But I guess when, when we're talking about machines, knowledge is extremely useful because machines don't have uh, the lack of motivation to apply it. So if <laughs> a machine has your data, then you can assume it's, it's being put to use. That's a very good point. I haven't thought of it before. 
But yes, perhaps in the machines, in the absence of the emotional component, at least right. in the absence of knowledge about this emotional component, it may be there already. We just don't know. <laughs> it may be a yeah. different kind of emotional intelligence or other sorts of intelligence. But in the absence of that, the machines can act upon knowledge. Uh, that's exactly. what they do. And this is the interesting. That's an evolutionary advantage that the, exactly. the, the so-called just... artificial intelligence has a, upon us. We're, yes. It, yeah, it pretty much that has. That just came to me when you were saying it. But that's, that's, I think that's how we can describe evolution now. So we were the, we were the species that could gather knowledge, but we had that automatic mechanism stopping us from acting on our best you know yes. intentions but then the next organism that follows us will not have that <laughs> yep and you can observe a similar trend also in human history even without the artificial intelligence in that many of the the world leaders who have really changed the world and in 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 a good or a bad way they mm. uh, they either had a very good control over their emotional uh, on over the way in which emotions affected their uh, rational decisions. Decision-making, yeah. Or they actually had no morals or very different kind of morals. Like if you think of paranoics like Hitler or, or Stalin uh, or mm. other dictators, they had a very screwed up moral system compared to uh, the rest of us. Uh, th mm. They certainly did have a moral system they they had the system mm. of beliefs ideology and all that and but it was different so it didn't impede uh their actions they could mm. be ruthless they could be very pragmatic and practical and they gained a competitive advantage exactly. over the population uh, and over other countries perhaps by just being less emotional and more uh knowledge driven rather than uh you know emotion driven yeah, they so just had conviction. There, there you have it. So that that's probably how the machines are going to beat us now, is by just acting without scruples, without uh, the second thoughts and delays, just acting fast. There Let alone go. that they can they can act fast just by being much more capable of crunching numbers and and and, and all that. So anyway, we'd better be friends with <laughs> with them. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, we cannot stop. Uh, the evolution uh, no we just can adapt and i think the universal law of darwin uh, that we are so readily applied to the rest of the nature but forget to apply it to ourselves is that it's not the survival of the strongest not survival of the smartest it's survival mm. survival of the fittest and absolutely and fitness can we fit yeah the fitness is actually adaptability because this uh, the environment changes so rapidly nowadays and always has been changing that whoever mm. can change and flow together with the environment like mm. and and the secret to that i think is having a very small ego <laughs> because ego Absolutely. is the resistance to the change and uh, the flow is the change itself it's life so if we as species as a species can become more adaptable and more flexible uh, and we will be more fit to go f along for the ride with the artificial intelligence for a longer period of time. If we fail, if we are stuck in our patterns, if we try to preserve and conserve rather than yeah. to progress, then uh, we'll, we'll just be, the, the evolution will get rid of us 
quicker. Yeah, will disappear into insignificance. Yep, or being Love enslaved, it. or or anything like that. So the, all all the bad scenarios from the human centric point of view will uh, mm. will realize. So they're good scenarios, and uh, we'll, let let's try to enjoy the ride for as long as possible in a mindful way. Man, I could talk to you all day, but uh, yes. let's uh, wrap it up here right now. We have to do a sequel to this because cool. I just thought of a question. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll leave the listeners with this question that you will that will continue in part two. Mm-hmm. But it just made me think when you said um, possibly enslaved. What can they What can they get from us? Is it you know? Is it the heat? Is it you know? Can they use us to power them? You know, but, but like, why not wipe us out completely if we're useless? I mean, what what use can we serve to the machines as slaves? Yeah, very good question. Uh, okay, it, well, it, let, let's let's continue that on in, part two in the sequel. Yes, I'll think about it in the meantime. Nice. Yeah, Thank okay. you so much, Leo. It was a true pleasure. Uh, I love speaking with you. Likewise, so, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Tan. Let's do it again. Um, cool. Yes. Thank you. All right, once again, this is me, Tan Lei. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm aiming to publish a new episode every week. So please subscribe if you'd like to hear more. Thank you for listening and hope you can join me again next week.